I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about the Palestinian Liberation Movement with the historian Dr. Alam Pape and U.S.-based Palestinian journalist Ramzi Baroud, co-editors of the new book, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. Available now from Clarity Press. I know some of my listeners uh, don't always like the longer intros, so I want to get right to the conversation. Here it is, Dr. Elan Pape and Ramzi Baroud on Our Vision for Liberation. Welcome to Parallax Views, two guests I'm very happy to be speaking with, Dr. Ramsey Baroud and Dr. Elaine Pape, editors of Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. How are you doing today, uh, Ramsey and Elon? Um, nice I'm well. Thanks for having So if we could start out here, I guess when we're talking about the uh, vision for liberation, we have to discuss uh, the the Palestinian struggle and, and defining that struggle, because I think there's still people that have ignored uh, the struggle over the years or, or they've been misinformed about it. So how do we define uh, the Palestinian struggle against occupation and colonialism, as well as the history of it? Ramzi, why don't you start and I will join Right. It, it's uh, slightly intimidating to answer this question when you have uh, one of the world's best historians of Palestine. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm going to say that um, defining the struggle is actually one of the most important components 
in understanding what is happening in Palestine, because the, the entire historical discourse in Palestine, at least in the eyes of the, of the West and, and, and much of mainstream media throughout the world, is actually based on misconceptions. Uh, to the extent that a good number of years ago, there was a study here conducted, I believe, by the by Zubi International polling uh, organization, uh, um, where they uh, discovered that a, a larger number of Americans are under the impression that Palestinians are occupying Israel, as opposed to Israel occupying Palestine. Um, so, so the, the the whole paradigm here here is is founded is on misconceptions, uh, intentional misinformation and disinformation. Um, and as a result, we are finding ourselves not only unable to engage in, an, in, in a liberation struggle in the traditional sense, as many countries throughout the, 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 the global South have uh, throughout the years, but we are actually trying to, still trying to deal with the very basic definitions that Palestinians are not the aggressors. Palestinians are, in fact, in a state of self-defense. Uh, Israel is not facing an existential threat. Palestinians in refugee camps living under an apartheid regime, uh, fighting for their very survivals in Gaza and in various other places in Palestine, uh, are not the ones imposing that existential threat on Israel. This is extremely frustrating from any, from any point of view. But especially for Palestinian intellectuals and historians who try to fight against this massive edifice of, of misinformation. But there's another thing that, that also makes it equally difficult is that you have these alternative narratives <clears throat> created to cater to specific audiences uh, in the West. Uh, one is the religious narrative, which is very omnipresent here in the United States that sees Israel a country on a mission uh, to bring about religious salvation and that Palestinians are an obstacle in the face of that spiritual salvation that is going to bring an end to human suffering and all of that. Um, other interpretation of this uh, existed throughout the years. For example, back during the time of the Soviet era, Israel was seen as a citadel that was, um, you know, fighting against the red menace in, in the Middle East. And it was the Western American ally fighting against the socialist Arab republics, whether in Syria or in Libya or in Egypt or elsewhere. So you have these numerous interpretations and almost none of them actually name things the way it is, that Palestinians are an occupied nation, uh, Palestinians are a nation that, that is indeed facing uh, the real existential threat. Palestinians are largely refugees living in refugee camps and in diaspora, and that they are fighting for survival. Literally in Gaza, they are actually fighting for survival. Uh, and, and, and this is so critical, of course, to, the, to this particular book, but to the work of numerous Palestinian and pro-Palestinian historians and intellectuals who are trying to take us back to the original definition of what is actually taking place in Palestine. Yeah, uh, not much to add. This was a brilliant, uh, uh, I think, exposition of, of, of the struggle. Uh, it could be also uh, viewed in a, from a, a different angle that would, I think, complement what Ramsey was saying. I, I would say that uh, there are two um, kind of conflicting uh, ways of describing this struggle. Uh, there is the one that unfortunately is still hegemonic uh, in the mainstream media and academia in the West, uh, which likes to see the struggle as a, as a struggle between two national movements, one more modern and Western, uh, the, the, the Jewish national movement, Zionism, and one more Arab, therefore less modern, uh, maybe more religious in a way, but uh, the West is willing to accept in this narrative that uh, the two national movements uh, have some equal 
uh, rights and therefore the Palestinian struggle is legitimate, but unfortunately from this perspective, it is usually not conducted in the right way, not, not in the intelligent way. Uh, it, it is after all a, a struggle conducted by a non-Western national movement against a Western national movement. Uh, this is the best I think the Palestinians can hope for in the mainstream uh, uh, media. Whereas Ramsey and myself, and I luckily I have to say so many more, more people than ever before in maybe more alternative media uh, in the civil society, understand that this is not the right way of depicting or framing uh, the struggle. This is an anti-colonialist struggle. First and foremost, the Palestinian struggle is an anti-colonialist struggle. And in order to accept it, of course, you have to accept the definition of Zionism as a colonialist or a settler colonialist movement, and the state of Israel as a continuous state of, a colonial, of colonialism, uh, which includes apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and all the other means uh, a, a settler colonial state employs in order to uh, maintain its control over someone else's uh, homeland. Uh, and, and I think that uh, once you accept that this is an anti-colonialist struggle that uh, aspires for decolonization in the 21st century, which is not an easy sentence to say because usually we associate decolonization with the 19th century or maybe the latest, the mid, up to the mid 20th century. But if you, if you are familiar and you're willing to be open enough to apply the term decolonization, not only to Palestine, but to everywhere in the world where still racism and residues of colonialism determine the policies of governments against minorities, against indigenous people, against people of color, and so on. And therefore, I think this is a, 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 the best way of defining the Palestinian struggle is to say it's an anti-colonialist struggle uh, based on uh, justice, a, a call for human rights and civil rights, and a struggle against racism. And, and when you put all these very positive values that are at the very heart of this struggle, you understand how, how uh, uh, poisonous is the Israeli attempt to frame this struggle as a terrorist struggle, as a religious struggle, especially an Islamic religious struggle, and, and so on. So I think it's, uh, I like your question because I think that um, it's, it's far more important to talk about the struggle than to misuse the, uh, the word conflict, which so many people are using. Uh, um, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think that nowadays when you, you come to more updated and progressive, whether academic or political meetings on Palestine, Nobody is saying that this is a meeting about the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is a meeting about the Palestinian struggle against colonialism and for democracy, for decolonization, and so on. So you can, you know now exactly what the struggle is against, but you also know what the struggle is for. Uh, uh, liberation in the Palestinian case also means something is so important for people to understand. Uh, 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 a demand, a basic and uh, elementary human demand for normalcy, to live normal life, uh, uh, which is something that I think a lot of people in the West do not appreciate it. Because if you talk to young Palestinians in Gaza or in the West Bank, and you ask them, what is your biggest aspiration? You will find out that they would like to have a bus that takes them to the university without being stopped at the checkpoints that they would like to live in a place where the next door neighbor was not taking at midnight to prison without any, any trial, that the house the opposite on the opposite side was not demolished by the Israeli forces. Every act which is a, a normal and taken for granted, human everyday act in the West is denied to so many Palestinians. And that is also part of the struggle. To, to, to have the right to live normal life uh, that uh, is denied by force for so many years to so many uh, Palestinians. I guess the next question I have, 
and I don't know if you want to answer this, Elon or, or Ramsia, you could as well. What do you think the, the greatest historical distortions and myths that many hold in the West or are, uh, or that, that, that we're just bombarded with in, in, in a lot of Western countries when it comes to uh, the Palestinian struggle in Israel? Yes, I, I will start and Ramsey could add. I, I even wrote a book which is called The Ten Myths of Israel, where I enumerated uh, the ten. I will not give all the ten. I will kind of group uh, uh, this myth. Uh, uh, there are myths about the past, there are myths about the present, and there are myths about the future. Uh, the most important myth about the past, or the most important distortion, which is still, unfortunately, can, uh, it, it can still be found in some uh, 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 textbooks, uh, whether in schools or universities, and uh, definitely in the, in the discourse of politicians and journalists, is that Palestine was an empty land waiting for, or was a land without people waiting for the people without land. Both sides of the equation of this myth are, are totally wrong. Palestine, of course, was not empty. It was a land full of people. Uh, it, was, it was a thriving society that on the eve of the Zionist arrival was undergoing an accelerated process of modernization, uh, 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 defining itself in national terms, both pan-Arab national terms and more local uh, national terms, and, and it was about to enter uh, the 20th century as many other uh, uh, Arab societies ha have done so. Um, so. So the land was definitely not empty, and it was with people who had clear aspirations and political orientation, as so many people uh, in the colonized world or the world that was under imperial Ottoman rule or later on under the imperialist uh, uh, influences of Britain in France. Um, the, uh, the second part of the myth that uh, uh, the Jews were a land without people, there are quite a, a, a series of very good books that, uh, of course, uh, indicate clearly that uh, it's, it's absurd to, to try and claim that you know that the, the Jews who arrived in Palestine are the descendants of the Jews who lived in the Roman uh, period 2,000 years before. There's a good book by Shlomo Zahn called The Invention of the Jewish People on this. I, I myself don't care much if people, by the way, uh, want to have this narrative. The validity of the narrative is less interesting. What is important if this narrative is accepted by powerful institutions and movements and can lead to the dispossession of people. And this is what happened in the case of, of Israel of Palestine with that narrative. Um, another historical myth, which is very important, is the myth that uh, Israel is still can still be found in the Israeli foreign ministry website and is still propagated by many people who support Israel, is that the Palestinians were offered in 1947 a very generous and, and logical solution, that is to partition Palestine to two states, and they foolishly refused it went uh, with the Arab states to war against Israel and therefore are responsible for the fact that so many Palestinians lost their home and homeland and became uh, refugees. Uh, with the work like historians like myself, who were called the new historians, but and before that by the work of many excellent Palestinian historians, uh, uh, we understand two things. That one is that there was no way that an anti-colonialist movement like the Palestinian movement would accept uh, giving half of its country, of its homeland, to uh, a movement of settlers, the majority of which arrived only two years before. I mean, it's just unthinkable that any indigenous native national population, national movement would ever agree to such a thing. Uh, and secondly, uh, we now know, because the Israeli documents uh, have been declassified uh, and, and we have great uh, and, uh, and very solid uh, evidence uh, that uh, Israel perpetrated and planned and the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And, and it was not the war that caused the making of the refugee problem. The war was the means by which Israel <clears throat> created the refugee problem because <clears throat> it, uh, like any settler colonial movement, it needed the territory without the people. Uh, and and that, the best way was to use the war in order to uh, massively expel as many Palestinians uh, as possible. 
There are also myths about the present, which I think are, are, are very or more closely to our to our times, right? And this has to do with uh, the peace process, the whole myth of um, uh, uh, the West mediating honestly between the two sides, making very uh, reasonable uh, uh, and logical uh, um, uh, propositions that only the Palestinians seem to, 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 to reject. If you look uh, more uh, closely at these uh, mostly American proposals for peace, there are replicas of the Israeli uh, idea of having as much of historical Palestine as possible with as few Palestinians in it impossible, but in different ways of doing it. Like sometimes you propose to expel the Palestinians, sometimes you propose to enclave them uh, in, in cantons where they don't have any ways of interconnecting or moving in or out of the places. Uh, and these are really dictates of surrender and oppression rather than uh, uh, proper uh, peace proposals. So I think there's a whole mythology built on, on a genuine American effort to bring peace, which is a fabrication of the truth, a, a, a real Israeli desire to have peace, which is another fabrication of the truth, a, and a constant Palestinian rejection of the idea of reconciliation, which is another fabrication of, 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 of the truth. And, and finally, uh, I think there are also myths about uh, the future, you know, the, the idea that uh, the, the only the two-state solution uh, with uh, a totally legitimate uh, racist ethnic Jewish state is the only game in town and the only thing we can talk about when we talk about the future. This is also a myth. Uh, 50 years of wasted energy on the wrong solution proved to us that there are, that is the time to talk of alternatives. Alternatives that do not include a vision of an ethnic racist state, uh, but rather a vision of a democratic state for everyone, from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean, a, a state that includes rectification of past evils through the uh, repatriation of the Palestinian uh, refugees uh, and the dismantling of all the colonizing uh, institutions and metho methodologies. So, so um, there are, as I said, I counted 10 myths, I didn't give you all of them, but, but I think as a final sentence, it is very important, and I wrote another book about it called The Idea of Israel. It's very important to understand that if you fabricate a project on this magnitude, uh, you need to work very hard to maintain this fabrication. You don't just send sound bites to the air and people buy them. You need the collaboration of your academia. You need the collaboration of your filmmakers, your writers, your poets. Uh, you need the collaboration of Jewish communities and Christian communities around the world to uh, sustain the fabrication. And you have to maintain it. And, and uh, I think people don't realize how much effort Israel is, has put in the past and still putting in the, in, in the present in order to sustain this uh, 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 mythology uh, that uh, hopes that it hopes would allow it to continue the colonization of Palestine and the oppression of the Palestinian without serious international rebuke. That's the main reason that they're doing it. It's also done for self-consumption. Uh, because there are quite a lot of Israeli Jews who might ask questions about the validity of what's being done in their name. So you have to maintain it domestically and externally. Uh, and uh, and you know, time will tell how successful uh, they are in this. And would you like to add to that at all, Ramsey? I, I was interesting. It was interesting what Elon mentioned, because uh, some of these myths, I'm amazed that they uh, still persist. You know, I will still see when I go to bookstores, a book like um, From Time Immemorial, which I think has been uh, demolished. I, I think it's been uh, very much debunked. And yet some of these myths uh, about, oh, there, there was no Palestinians there when when this began, they persist. Why is that? Well, of course, they, they, they persist and they will continue to persist uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, the historical distortions uh, that we're discussing right now, they are part of the massive discourse that is uh, that has been at, at work for, for many years. Uh, uh, and the second reason, because Palestinians are absent from the conversation altogether. So no matter how ridiculous these distortions are, if there's nobody else 
that is in a systematic and real way debunking them uh, in mainstream society, then they will, of course, carry on no matter how um, ridiculous they may appear. <clears throat> but regarding the issue of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, the, the, the whole thing was based on a, an edifice of text and literature that goes back many, many years, Haaretz had an interesting, um, an interesting article a few years ago where they said that they have discovered this document uh, where <clears throat> Bingerion in the early 50s um, summoned Israeli intellectuals and historians and asked them, I'm sure that Iran knows more about this than I do, but uh, basically he wanted to kind of fabricate some sort of a, a particular answer to how Palestinian refugees became refugees. Um, because there was, you know, the refugees was a very pressing issue at the time. Uh, it, they were, haven't really uh, kind of been marginalized uh, in, in the various societies in which they were expelled. And, and it was a very, very strong issue and international media was still talking about it. Um, and then they came up with this, uh, you know, the, several papers were offered to Bingarion at the time and one was chosen. And that's the one that defines the Israeli official narrative on the refugees, that they ran away because they were asked by the Arab, by Arab armies through radio to uh, run away and so forth. Um, and so, so this, is, this is something that's been taking place for such a long time, and it's systematic. As Ilan said, it's nothing random. They are not throwing ideas um, out there and hoping that people would believe them. It is part of, of a very powerful uh, Zionist discourse communicated through generations and numerous governments, officials, uh, semi-officials, lobby groups, intellectuals, media people, and so forth. While on the other hand, the Palestinian is not there to de debunk any of these myths. So Americans still believe that the peace process, the so-called, I mean, even the terminology itself is frustrating because even, even the pro-Palestine uh, intellectuals and, 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 and journalists and, and activists they have to abide sometimes by this uncomfortable terminology because it's the only terminology that exists and we have no alternative to it. So we have to talk about the conflict quite often. We have to talk about the peace process quite often and so forth. We have to engage because there's no other terminology that actually exists in this discourse. So there are not many Palestinians out there who are um, engaging in the uh, myth that, for example, uh, is the peace process has failed because there was no Palestinian peace partner. So what do we do in order for, you know, it takes two to tango. I mean, this is the terminology that the Zionists use here and, and, and Netanyahu in particular have used throughout the years. How can we make peace if peace partners? Okay, why do you have no peace partners? Well, because some Palestinians still want to destroy the state of Israel. Of course, another myth that does it, it's not real, it doesn't exist. And Palestinian disunity. Palestinians are not united. If they are not united, who represents the Palestinians? But, but who has invested in this Palestinian disunity? Who has conditioned, not just the Israelis, but the Americans who have conditioned their aid? Condoleezza Rice in particular made it very clear to Mahmoud Abbas when she was the Secretary of State that any agreement with Hamas would mean no American aid to the Palestinian Authority. So he canceled the talks that were taking place and they were shaping up pretty good and they were going to reach some sort of a national unity um, government. Um, but, but the myths also extend beyond, beyond this to, for example, to the American official uh, political institution. The US is an honest peace broker. Not many people actually within the discussion, even if they could, you know, which rarely happens, blame Israel for um, you know, any particular uh, issue regarding why the peace process is not moving forward, not very many people in mainstream society would actually doubt that the U.S. is an honest peace broker. Who created this term? Who imposed this term? Uh, who promoted this term? And can we challenge this term? Maybe, maybe we can challenge it in this platform, but we can't challenge it in the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN and certainly not on Fox News. So this, this, this is why these myths actually carry on and, and continue. And just one last thing, I want to say that quite often, even within the pro-Palestinian community uh, in the West, 
I mean, remember, we are all children of, you know, we are, we are born and raised and, and the language we develop is the language of our environment, of our communities, of the, the, the news that we hear in the, the TV and radio and read in the newspapers. So no matter how radical some of these voices are at the end of the day, they revolve within a Western discourse. Radical, progressive, you bet, but it's still a Western discourse. So as a result, quite often, I find myself, and many Palestinians do, on the defensive, that, that you know, we are judged over the violence that we are using. And you know, we should be adopting ways closer to those of Martin Luther King or Mahatma Gandhi and so forth. So because of the kind of myths that, that perpetuated throughout the years that presents Palestinians as violent uh, people. Well, if you actually look at history, you will say that the you'll find out that the vast majority of Palestinian resistance uh, since the beginning of the 20th century were actually largely popular resistance. And, and this popular resistance was used uh, in, in, in an incredible ways during the Palestinian strike uh, uh, of 1936 and the rebellion that followed, and you know, especially during the first Palestinian Intifada in 1987. And every act of resistance that happens every day in Palestine as we speak, People lining up before checkpoints, you know, in, with their prayer rugs, trying to get to Al-Aqsa Mosque to pray or to their churches in East Jerusalem, despite of the humiliation, despite of the violence by the Israeli soldiers, their faith is an act of resistance. Their insistence on education, and by the way, despite of everything, Palestinians remain one of the most educated nations in the Middle East. That's an act of resistance. Numerous such manifestations, yet here we are, quite often find ourselves on the defensive, trying to explain why certain acts of violence takes, takes place as if it's not Israel that actually kills Palestinians on a daily basis. I wanted to talk a little bit, and I know this probably seems like a ridiculously um, basic question, uh, but I, I feel as if when I've talked about Palestine with people who aren't familiar with the topic, they don't even know there, there are people I know that don't even know what the Nakba was. Um, could you speak to what that was in case I have these listeners that are completely new to the topic? Do you want to cover that, Ramsey or Ilan? Uh, if Ilan could take on this question, that would be great. Okay, thank you. Yes, I know I, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it should be common knowledge, but I agree with you. It's, it's not common knowledge. Uh, Nakba, or the catastrophe, is the Palestinian reference to, to the events that uh, started more or less in um, February 1948 and, and ended uh, within nine months at the very last days of, of, of that year. Uh, this is the core of, of the, the, the idea of the catastrophe. The catastrophe meant that these were nine months in which the, the Zionist forces and later the Israeli forces from the 15th of May, as they were called, uh, systematically, intentionally and systematically uh, uh, destroyed uh, half of the Palestinian villages, uh, more than 500, uh, uh, totally demolished uh, the Arab neighborhoods in either uh, mixed Arab-Jewish uh, towns or in towns that were purely uh, Palestinians, uh, and uh, turned half of Palestine's population uh, in, into refugees. Uh, the Nakba is also the uh, takeover of 78% uh, of what used to be uh, mandatory Palestine, and according to uh, the um, commitments made by the international uh, community to all the nations of the Arab world, was supposed to be uh, the, 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 the nation state of the Palestinians. So if 78% of that uh, intended nation state became the, the Jewish state, uh, of Israel. Uh, the Nakba is also the, 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 the loss of uh, personal uh, careers uh, and uh, opportunities, the human capital that uh, Palestine possessed of one of the most impressive one uh, in the Arab world. Uh, it is also a catastrophe in the sense that Palestine, in, in, including the, the rural uh, uh, part of Palestine, it began to take off after the Second World War and, and, and was about to enter a new era of uh, 
pluralism, modernization, uh, and coexistence in the real sense of the world between the communities that was all disrupted by this uh, military operation that meant to dispossess the Palestinians uh, uh, from Palestine. And finally, I would say that in order to understand the, the Nakba, I use the term in 2007 as the ethnic cleansing because it is a crime against humanity more than anything else. It's a crime against humanity, humanity because there are human beings who sit down and make a decision, a conscious decision, to ex massively expel almost a million people from uh, their homes. And, and not to let them ever go back to their uh, homeland. Uh, in fact, if it was up to them, they would have expelled much more than 1 million people, but there was a limit to, to their military capacity and there was some Palestinian resistance uh, and some volunteering forces from the Arab world. And that's why uh, um, there, are, there were Palestinians still left in what became the state of Israel, not because the, there was no planning to get rid of them, but because there were limitations to the ethnic uh, cleansing uh, operation. So it's a crime against humanity, informed by a certain ideology that sees the Palestinians as aliens in their homelands and see the Jews, the Jewish settlers, as the native indigenous uh, uh, population. And finally, I would say that the Nagba is also the attempt to cover up the crime, either by planting uh, recreational forest over the ruins of the Palestinian villages or building Jewish settlements over them, uh, trying to uh, make sure that the world does not hear the Palestinian narrative. And until today, 2022, uh, uh, the new attempt to equate a belief in the Palestinian narrative with a denial of the Holocaust, which is an insidious, unbelievable new association Israel and its friends are trying to do in order to stifle any criticism on Israel, uh, are all part of this idea of the catastrophe. And finally, maybe just to add something else, a lot of Palestinians you will hear are talking about the ongoing Nakba, or in Arabic, Nakba Mustamira. Namely, the sense is that the settler colonial ideology that was behind the perpetration, behind the, uh, the execution, I'm sorry, of the ethnic cleansing in 1948, informed further acts of ethnic cleansing after 1948, even if they were not always on the same scale as the 1948 massive expulsion. For instance, the expulsions of 300,000 Palestinians from the West Bank during the June 67 war, the incremental and continued uh, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the greater Jerusalem area, from the Jordan Valley, from the south of Mount Hebron, uh, 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 from the Nakab, and from areas in the Galilee, all part of this ongoing uh, Nakba in the sense that you are still living in a catastrophe that has not ended because those who, who are responsible for it have not completed their project. Thanks, among others, for the liberation and uh, efforts and struggle of the Palestinians, of whose uh, whose individual stories Ramzi and I brought in our joint book. But it is important to understand that there is a sense of trauma and catastrophe still enveloping the Palestinian existence, uh, and and nobody should talk about post-trauma or post-colonialism in the case of Palestine. We are still in the same. Uh, historical period, which 48 was its very beginning. I want to get into um, the individual struggle aspect, because one of the most interesting parts of our vision for liberation is that it goes beyond um, diplomatic and armed struggles into, uh, you know, the stories of, of people in archaeology, uh, people in poetry. So it's telling uh, struggles from all these different corners of the world and different corners of life. Uh, but first, uh, there was one thing I wanted to ask um, Ramsey, and that's, uh, you quote uh, Che Guevara in the beginning and the end of the book. And I, I forget the exact um, line, but it has to do with field liberators and how, uh, I guess there are no liberators, there's only people to be liberated. Uh, could you speak to what you meant by that and just the issues uh, that the Palestinians face and how often uh, they, they haven't, I, I think a lot of times we don't place the Palestinian people at the core of uh, the, the struggle and, and the liberation. That's right. There are no such thing as liberators. The, the people liberate themselves. 
And, and this is really as true in the case of Palestine as it is in, in, in many other uh, historical scenarios and, and, and experiences. Um, ultimately, uh, the final push for liberation comes from the people themselves, the readiness, uh, the, the willingness, the capability of actually changing uh, or achieving that you know, coveted uh, paradigm shift. Uh, for in Palestine, sadly, there has been a lot of um, uh, misreadings of that kind of history, where the people themselves have been neglected, and there's always this kind of awaiting the liberators coming from somewhere else. Uh, you know, Palestinians have kind of, um, you know, at, at times the Palestinian leadership kind of played on, on this issue and instead of investing in the energies and channeling the energies and the powers of the Palestinian people themselves. We've been kind of waiting for Arab liberators, for Muslim liberators, for socialist liberators for such a long time. And at the end, what we ended up with is the American liberators through the, the peace process. And uh, also that, of course, got us absolutely nothing to the contrary. Since the Oslo uh, Accords was signed in 1993, Palestinians have lost uh, much more land to the uh, to the illegal Jewish settlements. They have, uh, the number of settlers have tripled and is growing since then. Uh, Jerusalem was, you know, practically uh, annexed, uh, uh, not only, you know, the de facto, but the Ori annexation as well. The West Bank is divided into various areas and zones and so forth. Gaza is under siege. So that got us absolutely nothing at the end of the day. The, the, the brightest moments of Palestinian history, where we really felt like freedom was coming closer, we could smell it, we could feel it, was the moments of popular rebellions, uh, namely the, 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 the first Palestinian intifada, some extent the second intifada, and of course, what happened last May, the, the popular rebellion of May, when we felt like there was finally a Palestinian, a collective Palestinian discourse that is shaping up, and there is a new generation that is rising from Al-Quds, to Haifa, to Nablus, to Gaza, that is really more or less speaking the same language. So that was kind of a moment in which you'd feel that this is, uh, you know, we are taking the right step in the right direction, uh, and that is the direction of liberation and freedom. Uh, but that's really the, the essence of, the, of this argument is that, and this is why the, the, the whole point of the book is that now we are going back to the people and to, to the representatives of these people. And I don't mean representatives in any kind of like phony superficial democracy. Uh, we mean representatives in the practical sense. These are engaged intellectuals. These are people who have lived the experiences and the ideas they preached. And they quite often paid a very price, uh, a very heavy price for it, uh, that being imprisonment, uh, uh, confinement, uh, um, loss of career, loss of wealth, loss of everything, loss of family members, and so forth. Uh, some of our contributors, like uh, Khaled Ajarrar, for example, was actually in prison while we were you know, trying to navigate how do we get her words uh, into the book while she was in, in, a, in a solitary confinement in an Israeli prison. Uh, these are the examples of the type of people who are going to articulate or who have successfully articulated the collective aspiration of the Palestinian people as, as a way of, of really demonstrating that point in practical sense, that it is the people who liberate themselves, that these are the representatives of the people, and they are going to tell us how, how they will actually take us to that final point of liberation. So... I know we only have time for a, a few more questions here, but one thing that I really wanted to address is I, I know people um, who are very sympathetic uh, and, and pro-Palestinian. They're sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, but they've become, I, I would say, utterly pe pessimistic about the struggle. Um, and I was wondering if both of you could address that, because I, I think we see a lot of brutality being done. Uh, just, I mean, look at what's happening with uh, Al-Aqsa, look at what's happening with Gaza. I think people are losing faith that, you know, that, that, that there can be um, a, a resolution to this, a, 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 vi a final vision for liberation completed. Uh, so if you could both address uh, that pessimism and why there may still be reason for hope. 
Well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I agree. I, I think you're right. There's a lot of uh, despair, not surprisingly, after so many years of oppression, occupation, ethnic cleansing, and so on. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that uh, it means that uh, there are no, uh, uh, there is no new and younger generation of Palestinians uh, who believe that they have the right to continue the struggle, that they are hopeful that their struggle will be uh, successful, that are highly uh, motivated and uh, informed by a very strong sense of justice and commitment, uh, who are also very realistic and knowledgeable. So it's not a, a, a group hallucination of people who uh, uh, who took drugs and don't understand the reality. The, these are young people who know exactly what the reality is, who know exactly the imbalances of power, know exactly the double talk of, of, of the West and its uh, 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 unfair and uh, unacceptable position. I'm talking about the political elites in the West, an unacceptable position on the Palestine question. Uh, so, so I think that... Uh, uh, it's very difficult to generalize, but I think that given the fact that this is a very young society, wherever the Palestinians are, they're a very young society, I think it's important to look at the younger generation, first of all, to see that there are those who will continue the struggle, first of all. So it's not just a matter of optimism, I think, and pessimism. It's, first of all, the question is, are people really, as the Israelis hope, by the way, would say enough is enough, we give up whatever the Israeli give us. Great, thank you, and we will stop any any attempt to change uh, the reality. This is not going to happen. This is definitely not going to happen. Uh, secondly, you know, I'm an historian, and and, and from a more kind of a wider perspective, um, there were there are always moments of nadir and despair in liberation struggles. Uh, sometimes, by the way, ironically, they come. Uh, on the eve of a very great success. Uh, and uh, if you talk to um, members of the ANC, they will tell you that uh, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall, when I, the sense among the ANC was that the United States will never join the sanction regime on South Africa. And as long as the United States would stand by apartheid South Africa, the struggle would be much longer and bloodier. Suddenly, without any connection to South Africa, the, the, the end of the Cold War enabled at least some people in America to push the American administration into joining the uh, sanction regime on South Africa. And that contributed, it was not, of course not the only factor, but it contributed to a very different phase in the struggle for liberation in South, South Africa. Uh, similar, if you look at the Algerian struggle, there was a sense that uh, France will not be able to control the French settlers and their own acts of terrorism in Algeria. And this happened just before uh, the full liberation of Algeria uh, came about. So, so I think that uh, 70 years of, more than 70 years of liberation struggle since 1948, actually the liberation struggle is of course longer than that, but let's say the one that started in 1948 ha has not ended. Uh, and uh, historically, I, I don't find out many cases where projects which are ba based on unjust foundations and which you have to sustain by force because you cannot sustain it anymore by moral arguments. You cannot sustain it anymore by natural support of people for your project. You have either to intimidate them or to seduce them in order to support you. When these are the circumstances, despite the fact that you might be a mighty military power and maybe even a financial power, uh, it means that uh, uh, it is a precarious uh, success. A and therefore I, I do believe I I'm realistic. I know it can take longer than I hope for. I may not see it in my lifetime, but I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that the struggle will continue and eventually will, will succeed. Uh, Unfortunately, the longer you wait, the, the, the more difficult it is to, it would be to build the life after the struggle. So I do hope the short 
period ahead of us is there. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't think pessimism is uh, a luxury Palestinians can allow themselves to having overdoses. Uh, and I think most of them uh, realize that and do not allow uh, this to determine them. You know, I will finish by saying there's, you know, psychiatrists usually say, you cannot undo a trauma. If you had a trauma, you cannot undo it. You cannot go back, but you can make sure that the trauma does not define you. That it doesn't define you as a victim. It doesn't define you as a defeated person. And I think Palestinians on many levels are aware that they're not going to let the trauma of 48 to define them. Uh, and rather their humanity uh, is defining them and the nature of their uh, struggle. If I could add one thing there too, you know, when I say, I shouldn't even say many people are pessimistic. I, I think what I should have said there is, and this is a problem, I, I think that um, too many people that consider themselves allies in the West are pessimistic. And, and again, that goes back to what I think Ramsey was talking about with, you know, this issue of how Westerners frame uh, the Palestinian struggle. That's right. I, I, I was going to actually add uh, to that beautiful answer by Ilan, just the simple question is like, why do they feel that way? And while Palestinians in Gaza, for example, which is should be the most pessimistic place on earth, they're not. Um, I know that for a fact because on a daily basis, um, I talk to friends, colleagues, journalists, family members in Gaza, and I don't get that sense. Uh, why is that? Why is someone in Seattle or in London is more pessimistic than in Gaza? I'll give you an example. There is a, a massive food crisis in Palestine as we speak. Uh, Oxfam says that uh, Palestinians only have three weeks of stored uh, wheat. Uh, and, and that was about two weeks ago. So they should be running out of wheat any, any day now. Um, how did people in Gaza, for example, deal with this? Um, there is this program that they started called uh, in Arabic, which means from the poor to the poor. Poor people donate money and they have these kind of massive, um, you know, pots in which they cook uh, stew and rice and whatever, and they feed people during the month of Ramadan. So they have these creative ways that would allow them to survive and in fact, if you look at the videos and the images, they even make it look like a beautiful community event in which people get together, they, they eat and they drink and they smoke and they even dance and they, you know, their children play together. And you would think these are not people who are living a semi-state of starvation. There was There is always a spin, no matter what happens in Palestine, no matter how difficult the situation is. I was born and raised in a refugee camp in Gaza. And at times, some of the Israeli military curfews imposed on our camp, uh, called Nusayrat, uh, lasted for nearly two months. How did we survive? With very little, we used to run out of water after a week. We used to run out of food after 10 days or so. And yet somehow, we used to always find, we used to collect rainwater and boil it and drink it. Um, and we used to find ways in which we can get together and talk about the good old days and, and, and play games and, and just joke and laugh and, and, and feel, you know, that we are still in touch with our humanity despite the massive campaign of dehumanization happening outside with the military and the killing and the shooting. So if Palestinians haven't reached that point of desperation and despair, why should anyone else feel that way? But I think the reason why... And, and, and I'm not going to elaborate too much. Just one main reason here is that because some of us, despite the fact that we are trying to challenge the American hegemony around the world and American um, you know, military advancements and so forth, we are convinced that nothing happens without the will of the Americans. If the U.S. supports Israel, and by extension, if the West supports Israel, Palestinians are so minuscule in their resistance and they're so... Uh, puny and irrelevant, that they can't really change, you know, achieve a paradigm shift. But, but if that is the case, how is one to explain what happened in Afghanistan? And this is not about the Taliban, love them, hate them, it's irrelevant to me. But the fact that when the Americans invaded Afghanistan, 
with their coalition of the willing. And they began killing, you know, entire villages. I, I worked at Al Jazeera at the time, and I remember some of our correspondents saying that they, after the destruction of entire villages, they would discover it weeks or months later because they are living in isolated areas and nobody was, you know, would report it to a central government or a central city. And, and entire people, tribes would vanish entirely. Who have, would have ever expected that there will be, a, there will come a day and not far off in the future, only 20 years later, in which the last American soldier is gonna be chased out of Kabul. You know, so, so I think that's really, we need to kind of walk away from that mindset that believes that only the US and the West are capable of affecting change in the world. No, people can do that. Whether as, as Ilan said, South Africa, Algeria, Cuba, Afghanistan, uh, 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 and you know many other parts of the world in modern history, in, 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 in you know in ancient history. This is the reality. Who had ever thought that, that it would be the Germanic tribes that is going to destroy the Roman Empire? So this kind of haughtiness and arrogance that comes with power usually finds it, its limits. Uh, the same way that the Americans found the, the, the limits of their firepower in Iraq, the Israelis would eventually, in fact, they are already beginning to see that the limits of their firepowers and military superiority in South Lebanon, in Gaza, and, and, and eventually in the rest of Palestine. So last question here, because we, we only have about um, eight minutes or, or seven now. Um, what, what is the final vision for liberation? What what could liberation possibly look like? What would it mean for the world? And uh, what is the process of decolonization? I know that's all a, a few questions tied up into one, but maybe just some basic <laughs> thoughts on those things. Well, if if I may start, um, I, I think that uh, you cannot predict or even need to predict in every detail how uh, decolonization would look like or imagine in full details a decolonized historical Palestine. I think what, what you can do is first of all determine very clearly or define very clearly the principles on which you would like that imagined vision to, uh, to unfold and then listen to the people themselves of what they would like to see as part of their liberated uh, uh, country and, and future. And if you add these two things uh, uh, together, it's very clear that uh, uh, decolonization includes the dismantling of all the institution and political structure that maintain apartheid, segregation, uh, oppression, military rule, ethnic cleansing, and in some cases, even genocidal policies. Uh, because without, uh, as long as these institutions and political structure continue to exist, uh, there is very little hope of fundamentally stopping these policies which are uh, uh, executed by these uh, powerful uh, organs. Uh, secondly, I think decolonization in the particular case of Palestine includes, uh, without even knowing the final details, it includes the right of return. Uh, the right of return, of course, has to be, can and should be worked out in details eventually, but uh, in any imagination uh, of a decolonized Palestine, those who want to return, those who wish to return, uh, should be able to do so. That, that is very, very clear. Uh, you can add to this also uh, an understanding that after, even after one more than a century of uh, oppression and so on, uh, the basic Palestinian uh, impulse is not revenge. It's quite, it's quite amazing in many ways. There is no impulse for revenge, for retribution. There is an impulse for restitution, which is something else. And I think that what will unfold in a decolonized Palestine is the fact that uh, what we are all associate with basic Palestinian society and rights, generosity, hospitality, 
tolerance. We're all come to the fore if there is no need to fight for your life, for your existence, uh, to defend your house from demolition and yourself for being expelled. These, uh, you know, ways in which we, Palestinians, whether they were Muslim, Christian, or Jews, lived under such conditions before 1948, when coexisting had a meaningful uh, uh, um, uh, kind of interpretation to the term, you know, when these, when, when villages were made of all three communities, cities were made of all three communities. So, so there is a historical legacy that, that also can inform this imagination. I will stop here because I won't, I won't take all the time. We don't have uh, Ramsey uh, take us to the finale there. Well, Ramsey, I, I want you to take us past the finish line uh, with regards to what the vision for liberation is and also uh, how listeners can get a hold of the book. Right. So the, the, there's bad news and good news. The bad news is that um, the book doesn't promise that if you read it, you will kind of have a code in, in which how, you know, this is what Palestinians want. And because, because neither I... Nor, nor anyone involved in the book can actually speak on behalf of the Palestinian people. But what, what we try to do in, the, in this book is to imagine uh, that vision being divided to many subtopics, uh, dealing with how do we redefine Palestine? How do we restate the history of Palestine? How do we understand the inner workings of Palestinian uh, civil society? Uh, what, is the, what is Palestinian popular resistance? How is, can science be used as a tool of liberation? How can even art and embroidery and music and, 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 and numerous other aspects of Palestinian reality and existence can be used uh, towards that? And then, of course, there, there is, you know, there are various attempts as by way of explaining what coexistence would be, uh, for example, by Awad Abdel Fattah, by Rada Karmi, and others. So I, I really doubt that, um, and I know I'm being a little bit too bold here by saying this, that, that a reader would read this book and would be kind of left with the idea of Palestinians do not have a narrative of their own that is so unique and so powerful and so commanding and deserves to be the center of attention. And that's what we try to do. And, and I hope that we have succeeded. Uh, in, in doing so. But this is this book is also, you know, is meant to be the starter of a conversation on Palestine, but around the right language, around the right discourse, no more deceptions, no more lies, no more, uh, uh, you know, uh, hyperbolies and no more talking about peace process that, process that doesn't exist in two states that was never really meant to be a reality in the first place. We are trying to direct everybody's attention to the proper conversation and, and, and the thing about this book that is so unique that you don't have any other book uh, that actually tries to do this. We, are, we have been contending with the present and the past and, and rightly so, but now it's time to start actually um, outlining our vision for the future and that's what we try to do, but we hope that other authors and intellectuals can build on that. Again, by keeping the people, the engaged intellectuals and ordinary people of Palestine being the center stage and the point of, of or the central point of discussion uh, regarding the future of Palestine and, and Israel. Uh, the book uh, is available, of course, via Amazon, but it's also available via Clarity Press, the publisher, uh, uh, Marston Books in the UK, and many independent bookstores at this point. Well, thank you again. Uh, Dr. Ramsey Baroud and Dr. Alan Pape for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks for having us. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Alan Pape and Ramsey Baroud on the new book they've co-edited entitled Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian leaders and intellectuals speak out. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier and a few tiers in between. $10 tier and above gets a producer's credit shout out. Please, if you want this show to keep going, 
support me on patreon.com. As you've noticed, I have a few less sponsors than I had in the past months, so I really need that Patreon support. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.